So good morning again. We are uh, today, we are beginning our trek towards um, Christmas. You'll notice that in when you start studying your the scripture, you'll see that there are, um, as we do Sunday school lessons, uh, when we start turn that corner in December, we start much more focusing on the scripture that's related to the birth of Christ. And that's nothing different from today. We are beginning at the beginning, and we're going to go from there. So before we get started, we're going to have a word of prayer. So let, let's pray. Lord, I'm so thankful we have this opportunity. We can come and we can open your word. We can learn about you. We can learn about who you are and where you came from as far as your earthly lineage is concerned. We can also learn about the perfect timing for Lord, you don't do things by accident. You have a perfect plan for all of us, just like you had a perfect plan for when Christ was to come and die on the cross for our sins. So we thank you, Lord, for this Christmas season. As we remember, the reason for this season is truly so that we can remember your great sacrifice that you gave. It's not about the birth of the babe in the manger. That, as great and miraculous as that was, it's about his sinless life and sacrifice on the cross for our sins and his resurrection showing that God accepted that sacrifice that makes our life, our eternity possible. So Lord, as we think on this Christmas season and on the birth of Christ, we can't not focus on the cross that saves our souls. We thank you Lord, for all you do for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so today we're going to be we're going to be covering uh, two passages of scripture. Uh, the first is in Matthew, and then talking about the lineage of Jesus, and then we're going to switch over to Hebrews and talk about the 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 timing of all these things. Uh, Matthew chapter one verses one through six and sixteen seventeen deals with the the genealogy the genealogy of Jesus Christ. I mean, that's pretty straightforward. It begins with Abraham and it ends with Mary and Joseph. Uh, the purpose for this genealogy, remember, is Matthew's is written primary to Jewish people. And very important, if you ever read Josephus's history books, uh, you'll see how detailed the historians, the Jewish historians were. I mean, they were very detailed. And what they did. They know everybody. I mean, there's far more details in the book of Josephus than the Bible has. And the reason for that is because we don't need that information. But the Jewish community, they need and want that information, that level of detail. Uh, not that the Bible is not very detailed. I'm saying it covers the things that are important to us. But the Jews may view things, they may want a little more nits and things. And therefore, the the, if you look at the way the Jewish history books are written, they're much, much more detailed. That does not make them gospel, you understand. God gives us in his word what we need to hear, and we should study that. But that doesn't mean we can't look at some historical documents to help us have a better understanding of what God's word has to say. Anyway, I don't want to digress on that. What's unusual about this theology, though, genealogy about Jesus compared to all the others in Jewish history is that this one includes five women. 
Now, women are not normally listed in genealogies at all because remember in the days of, in the biblical days and in that part of the world, uh, women were possessions for the most part. As unfortunate as that is because we know women have the same rights as anyone else and should be. Uh, you know, God created Adam and Eve. He did you know, he didn't create them. Uh, he created, he took the rib out of Adam to make Eve and not the, not the hip bone or the knee bone or something below him, but something that would be equal with him. And so God created men and women equal. Um, he gives different roles and responsibilities for the men and for the women, and he has different things that they should be accomplishing, but that doesn't make one less than the other. But anyway, during that downtime period, you know, there was really the, the lineage of the children was based upon the males. Women had very little involvement when it came to that. But it's interesting that this genealogy of Jesus has included five women. Why? Because God includes everybody. See, God never had a respecter of person. That's what the Bible says. God treats men and women the same. Both of them, all of them needs a Savior. All of them needs uh, to, to serve Him in some capacity. Again, like I said, that doesn't change the fact that he's given some certain responsibilities and other part, other sexes different responsibilities. You know, he's given the female the responsibility to be a mother and all that's involved in that. And he's given the male the responsibility to be the father and all that's involved in that. And they're two different things. Not necessarily one more superior than the other, but both of them being equally important. Anyway, I don't want to digress off on that. So the... Uh, um, we see that there are there are five women. Now, out of those, four of these women, interesting enough, that are listed are Gentiles. I think this is important because this shows you that Jesus was not, he was Jewish, but he, his bloodline consisted of the of different non-Jewish bloodlines. So Jesus was also Gentile. He was Jewish by law, but in his blood included that of the Gentile world. That makes perfect sense because when Jesus shed his blood on the cross, that blood was not just Jewish blood. That blood was Gentile blood. You understand? He had the blood of the world inside of him. That's important. I think it's important that God showed these things because Jesus died for us. He didn't just die for the Jews because his blood was our blood too. You see? So he, he would, that make perfect sense. Uh, now, the lineage line was Jewish because God said that he would establish the kingdom through Abraham. So therefore, the male line was Jewish. But that's how he added in the Gentile world was through the females uh, because it did not destroy his position uh, as the king, his rightful heir to the king, to that bloodline while incorporating the blood of the other world, the world in there. It's, God had a plan. Nothing's by accident. Anyway, now, interesting enough, these five came from five different nationalities. As I said, with all these differences, remember, though, these women, all of these people shared two things. They're all mentioned as ancestors of Jesus, but they're also all sinners and in need of a Savior. Every single one of these people we mentioned were sinners in need of a Savior. So Jesus came not just as their descendant, but as their Savior, their Lord, and their King. So let's look at the scripture now, verse 1. <clears throat> it says, in verse 1, it says, The book of the generations of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
Um, let me see something here right quick. I apologize. Yep, okay. I got that working right. All right, the um, uh, the the book of the generation. This is the book of the generation of Jesus Christ. Is not this does not give you the preeminence of the book of Matthew. This is not all. This is not the book of Matthew's statement. The book of generation of Jesus Christ is talking about these first verses, <laughs> right? This is the record of the origin of Jesus Christ, manly or the mankind or the human origin. Um. The expression, the book of generations, is purely a Jewish statement, and it means table of genealogy. See, this he's going to give you is the table. So before Matthew begins, he wants to make sure that he declares to the world that this is the rightful heir, the Messiah that was promised to come, that he has the right to claim this title. And so he's going to do that. In Genesis 5.1, um, the same expression is used. It says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And this means that this is the title of the first 17 verses. So, so we see the phrase was used again twice. It was used in, in Genesis, it was used in Matthew 1, but it was also used in Genesis chapter 5. It said, this is the book of generations of A Adam. Again, so we're showing that the phrase was about his genealogy, his table, not the book of Matthew. So it says, uh, the book of generation of Jesus Christ, the book of generation, and then it says of Jesus Christ. Now, the phrase Jesus Christ was a phrase that was combined by Jesus himself. Um, the phrase was not widely used while he was here on earth, but it was used a lot after his ascension. Uh, this kind of demonstrates to us then the time period in which Matthew wrote the book. Because he would not have been known widely as Jesus Christ until after his ascension and people recognized him to be the Christ, the Messiah. So, so this now, so the book we know was written in a time period in which people were recognizing that Jesus was the Christ. Jesus, interesting, the name Jesus. This is the name the angels gave Mary and Joseph to name him. Luke 131 says, And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. See, God told them to name him Jesus. His name was not selected by Mary and Joseph. His name was selected by God. Jesus is the name that God has chosen to save the world. Jesus is a Greek form, interesting, of the word Joshua. Now, Although he was Hebrew, the Gentile name he's called is Jesus. Now, they didn't call him uh, Joshua. They called him Jesus. You know, we could easily be worshiping in the name of praying in the name of Joshua. We're not. Why? Because God wanted us to pray in the name of Jesus, which is interesting enough, the Gentile name for Joshua. What better, what better way to do that? I mean, you know, and I don't go, you know, I, I, we have some people that would argue with me on this, but I'm just telling you what I believe. I believe this is, this is significant also. Because see, Jesus is Jewish, but he's here to save the Gentile. Remember, in Luke, the gospel story of the resurrection, I mean, the, the birth of Jesus, talks about that Jesus, when there was even being prophesied about him in the temple, it said, a light 
to lighten the Gentiles. See, Jesus came to save the world, including the Gentiles. We already see that five of the, his ancestors are Gentiles. And we also see now that they're using the name Jesus as a Gentile term for Joshua. I think this is significant. Because Jesus is here to save the world. Um, it says that then we see not only the name Jesus, but also the term Christ. Christ is the proper name that was applied to him by the angels who announced his birth in Luke 2.11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. See, this is a proper name. This was the name applied to him by the angels. Man did not recognize him as the Christ until after he ascended to the Father. But Jesus knew all along that he was the Christ. And me people began to understand that. Jesus again saying that he was the Christ. So we see it says that Jesus Christ. Um, it was used by the Lord himself twice. In uh, Matthew 23.8. And also in Mark 9.41. It only began to be used by others about the very close of his earthly career, at the end, when people recognized who he was. Then it says here, in the, again, in verse 1, the son of David, son of Abraham. You know, Abraham was the first from whom the family, it was predicted that the Messiah would spring, right? You know, God promised Abraham that the Messiah would come. He promised Eve that one of her descendants would redeem her and redeem mankind because of the sin that they had gotten the world into. That there would come an heir from her that would redeem the world. That the Savior would come and redeem and put us back in what they messed up. And until Abraham, when Abraham came, God promised Abraham that it would come through him. And it, it says the son of David is, was the last one that had the promise given to him that his line would be the line in which the Savior came. So to the Jewish readers, these two great starting points verified any true genealogy of the promised Messiah. Abraham and David. Abraham's descendant and David's descendant. So it kind of narrowed. Abraham had a lot of descendants, right? And it narrowed it all down. So now we're going to be focusing on the, uh, uh, the, the, the lineage from Abraham down through David down to uh, uh, where we see Mary or Joseph. It says that the first part says the son of David. So again, we go back to the verse. It's a long way between. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David. So it says the son of David, son of Abraham. Abraham was the first from whom the family was predicted, and David was the last, the son of David. Jesus referred to himself that way in Luke 20, 41. He refers to himself as the son of David. He is called that on two separate occasions. As he will blind, as as you know, as he healed blind men. Remember uh, in, in Matthew nine twenty seven and twenty twenty one. There's two different instances that Jesus healed the blind men, and they called him, uh, they called him son of David. They recognized the world here recognized that Jesus was a descendant of David. He was born in Bethlehem, of course. They think he's born in, uh, but they knew he was a son of David. The woman at the well referred to him. 
that way when she went to tell the uh, people after the woman at the well and Jesus spoke to her and recognized that he was the Savior, she went back into town and she used the phrase, the son of David. You know, so these all apply to Jesus either in devout acknowledgement of his rightful claim to it or in the way of asking the question for those who find out about this case. So Jesus was known as a son of David. So it was not debated. Now verse 2. So we see all that was just in verse 1. I mean, laying the foundation for the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Verse 2a says, Abraham begat Isaac. Now, we know that Abraham received a covenant that ultimately established the people of Israel. Right? Abraham is seen as one of the most faithful servants God ever had. Matter of fact, he was even willing to sacrifice his own son at God's command. The son of the promise that he and his wife had waited almost a hundred years to have. Yet he was willing to sacrifice this son if God demanded of him. Um, now, I, now, Abraham also had more children beside Isaac. Remember, he had um, Ishmael and he also had six uh, Israel from the from Sarah's handmaid in Hagar, who was actually his firstborn son, but he was not the son of the promise, which was Isaac, born of Sarah. Uh, he also had six more sons from his next wife after Sarah died, Keturah. He had six more sons. Um, but Jesus was the son of Abraham who came from Isaac. So we clearly identified that Jesus was not just a son of Abraham, but he was a son of the promise. He was descended from the son of the promise. And then we see verse 2b says, And Isaac begat Jacob. Now, not a lot is told about Isaac in the Bible. I mean, we really don't read much about it. You know, we know he had one wife named Rebekah. He had two sons. We know the firstborn son was Esau, and the second one was Jacob. We know they were twins. We know that Isaac, um, Esau was Isaac's favorite and Jacob was Rachel's, I mean, Rebecca's favorite. Uh, we know that uh, Esau was a man's man. He was a hunter and woolly outdoorsman. And we know that Jacob was more of his mother's son. Uh, you know, he helped cook and do things like that. We know his, with his mother's help, Jacob deceived Isaac into giving Jacob his blessing and you know, belong to the firstborn son. Prior to that, we know Esau gave up his birthright as the firstborn son over a bowl of stew. Either way, Jacob was the official heir to Isaac and Abraham as a result. So we know Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. These are the line. This is the line that God has required for the heir for the kingdom. And Jesus is showing that Jesus came through these ranks. In two, the second part of, uh, of verse 2, And Jacob begat Judas, which could be Judah, and his brethren. See, God met Jacob at Bethel. Remember we said today about the, uh, uh, the uh, where Jesus, uh, Jacob sees this stairway, and um, uh, he sees these temple, and, and God calls him, and he confirms his promise to Abraham through him. God has a relationship with Jacob personal relationship. See, God has personal relationship with them. He has personal relationship with us. I mean, it's about a relationship. You can't just say a thing and be saved. You have to have a personal relationship. Salvation is about relationship. I always tell people, I'm not a 
I'm not a Christian because I follow a religion. I'm not religious at all. People say, well, you go to church and all that stuff. I don't do that for religious purposes. I do it for relational purposes. <laughs> I have a relationship. I don't have a religion. I have a relationship. You understand? People can't understand that. The world's religion, Christianity, the world, Christianity is not a religion. It can be, unfortunately. Christianity is a relationship. You're either saved or you're lost. You either have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ or you don't. All the other stuff is semantics. Does God require us to be faithful? Yes, he does. As part of our relationship with him. Hey, my wife requires me to be faithful. That's not a religion. It's a, it's a relationship. If I'm not faithful to my wife, I lose that relationship. You understand? It has nothing to do. It's not religion. It's a relationship. So anyway, Jacob met him. Judah then is one of the 12 sons. Remember, he had 12 sons. Jacob had 12 sons. Why Judah? You know, Judah was the fourth son of Leah, Jacob's first wife, and the fourth son overall. So he wasn't the first son. He wasn't even the second or third son. He was a fourth son. So it's not really sure why Judah was selected to be the lineage to whom the Savior would be born. You know, one could speculate that God knew this tribe, the tribe of Judah, would stand firmer longer than all the others. Remember when the kingdom separated, the tribe of Judah was the one who stayed firm for 400 more years. And we know they didn't get lost. They went to Babylon. They came back. The tribe of Judah came back. So today, that's really what Israel is today, is the tribe of Judah. The others are still considered the lost tribes of Israel. They've been dispersed and assimilated throughout the world. So it's hard to find them. God knew that. God knows everything. And that may be why he chose Judah. There could be some other reasons. We'll explore those in just a minute. Let's look at verse 3. And Judas begat Pharaoh and Sarah of Thamar. This was interesting to me. Um, Judah was, you know, Judah was the party, was in was a part of selling Joseph into slavery. You can read that in Genesis 37. Um, he married a Canaanite woman. Um, he dishonored Jacob, who, like his father before, had probably warned his sons not to marry pagans. Uh, he also failed as a father. We know that because Ur, his firstborn, married a, a Canaanite woman named Tamar. And he was so evil that the Lord took his life. Uh, the man died childless in ancient. If, if someone died childless in ancient Greek, in ancient Israel, they had this law that the widow of their brother would uh, uh, have children from the the nearest brother. So if the firstborn son dies without a child, then that widow would have relations with the second oldest son. And from her, uh, she would have children, and that children would be the heir to the firstborn. Not heirs to the secondborn, but heirs to the firstborn who, who died. So, and they would keep the, the brother's name from vanishing, you know, and, and his lineage and all his property and everything else. Um, but we see that this man died. So then the secondborn son named Onan. Now, Onan was evil. Because he was willing to have a relationship with Tamar. But when it came time to conceive, he prevented himself from impregnating her. So he's willing to marry her and enjoy physical pleasures of their relationship. 
but unwilling to bear the burden of raising a son for his brother. So, um, by this, Onan figuratively raises his fist in protest against heaven, since his seed ultimately attempts, his deed ultimately attempts to block God's promise to give Jacob many grandsons. See, he denied, he was denying to do what God told him to do. Thus, it says in, in Genesis 38.10, the Lord strikes him down. So now, the Lord killed the first one, Ur, because he was an evil man. He killed the second one because he was also evil and was doing just vile things. Because pretty much he was, you could consider him pretty much then, uh, uh, he was taking advantage of Tamar. And that's in a way as a form of rape, isn't it? So then, we see now that the first two sons of Judah have died and he has a younger son who's not of age yet. And uh, they named Selah. And he said, hold on, hold on, let me not give you Selah. <laughs> First of all, Jacob's probably thinking, this one was bad luck. I mean, she's bad luck. Uh, every one of my sons who marry her dies. I got the third son, Selah, and I don't want him to die. So they said, let's wait. You go back to your father's household. And when Selah is old enough, then we'll have you come and you marry him. Um, well, time went by and it was clear that Selah had become of age and that wasn't going to happen. So uh, uh, she concludes that she must take, Tamar decides she must take action of her own or she wouldn't have any children. Because, you know, she can't just go out and marry again. Because she is married, she was already married, and she has the act that she has to do. And she has to have children for her firstborn husband. So she disguises herself as a prostitute when she learns that Judah is going to come to town with his sheep. And she disguises herself as a prostitute. And when Judah comes into the city at the city gate, she propositions Judah and in exchange for the promise of a goat, she has relationships with him. And as a sign that he will come back and give her a goat, he gave her his, uh, um, he gave her his ring and his uh, staff and his seal to hold until he came back. So she has a relationship with him. In the morning, she takes the seal, the ring and the seal and the staff, and she leaves before he gets up. So he gets up, looks around, and can't find her. He brings her, he, he can't find, I don't know if he that, I don't know if he went and got the goat, when she left, when he went and got the goat. Either way, she was gone. And so he asked the people in the town, hey, where's the prostitute that was there? And they said, we don't have a prostitute in this town. He said, oh, well, you know, I made an effort to reward her, I just, don't worry about it. Well, three months later, Tamar is pregnant. Well, Judah obviously brings her in and is going to have her, you know, killed as an adulteress. And, uh, Tamar presents to him the staff, the ring, and his seal, and said, this is who the father is. And Judah recognizes <laughs> that Tamar was in the right to act the way that she had, and his eyes was open. And Judah, we believe, changed at this point in time. He recognized his sin. This was an epiphany for Judah at this point. He changed from this evil man that he was, and he was different. We see that he was different in, in the way he treated Joseph or Benjamin. Remember when he went willing to give his life in place of Benjamin's life, when he went before Joseph, when the brothers came before him. 
So we see, he says, she is correct. It, the child is from me, or perhaps she is more righteous than I am, is what he said. Tamar's intervention um, seems to have been the critical changing of Judah from a man with no moral compass into one who is eloquent, self-sacrificing, and compassionate. When we see him next, right? When we see him with, the, with Joseph, totally different individual. Um, Tamar gave Judah his real identity. This was Judah recognized that he was the cause of the sin in his family. She forced him to grow up and readied himself for the encounters with Joseph. From that relationship, those that relationship with Tamar, Tamar had twins. These twins were Perez and Zerah. Yes, Jesus was a descendant of that union. You understand? God has a plan. And God will not be mocked here. Judah was trying to mock him. His children was trying to mock him. God will not be mocked. See? God provided the pathway through Judah to Christ. And he did it through Tamar and through that relationship. They were twins. And during the birth, Zerah put his hand out first and they tied a scarlet rim around it and he pulled it back in and then Pharaoh's was born. <laughs> and the word Pharaoh's was actually means, means he who bursts forth. So they named him, he who bursts forth. <laughs> I don't understand these names that they use for the Jewish children, but that's what he was called. Pharaoh's, which means he who bursts forth, actually was the firstborn. So then we see that's the lineage. So that's where Jesus came, the firstborn of Jacob, of Judah, I mean, from Pharaoh, who was the daughter, I mean, the son of Tamar, the child, the, Canadian, the, the, the Canaanite. And Pharaoh begot Esau. Little is known about Pharaoh, by the way, outside the birth story. His house, by the way, maintained a good reputation. So evidently, we see that Judah... <laughs> Judah and Tamar evidently raised this one right. For Ruth 4.12 says, And let thy house be like the house of Pharaoh's, for whom Tamar bare unto Judah, of the seed which the Lord shall give thee of this young woman. See, so we see in Ruth, we know that the, the household of Pharaoh's clearly was, was righteous. And I believe it's because of Judah had been converted at that point in time. He recognized his need to follow God. And therefore, he now, instead of having the children he had before, he makes a difference. In his older age, he helps lead Pharaoh to be a man whose household was worthy. So then Pharaoh has Esram. Esram is spelled Heroz in, in Genesis 48, 12. Born in Canaan, journeyed to Egypt with Jacob and the rest of the family, Esram. Now, Ezram is also, Ezram begat Aram in verse 3a. Aram is also spelled Ram in, in Ruth 4.19. One of the children born of Ezram in Egypt. We're trying to get through all this, I know, sometimes, but we're going to pick out some other things. It says in verse five, 4 and 5a, And Aram begat Abinadad, and Abinadad begat Nason. So let's look at, and Nason begat Salmon, and Salmon begat Boaz of Rahab. So, the male names here match those listed in 1 Chronicles 2, 10-11. Abinadad. Aaron, uh, Moses' brother, married his daughter. So Aaron, Moses' brother, married Abinadad's daughter. 
So Abinadad is Aaron's father-in-law. Abinadad begat Nason. Nason was a leader of the tribe of Judah. 1 Chronicles 2.11. Abinadad begat Nason, prince of the children of Judah. So we see that Nason became a prince, a leader, a king per se, of the tribe of Judah. It's recorded in the Hebrew Bible that he was the first to step into the Red Sea, believing what Moses said and what God was about to do. Now, we don't have that in ours, but in the Hebrew Bible, they say that he was the first person to step into the Red Sea. He begat Salmon. Salmon was the son of the tribal leader, so he had some authority, no doubt, right? But interesting enough, Salmon married Rahab. So it's clear then that you know, Rahab was a Gentile. She had been a prostitute. Um, after she saved the spies, you know, she was promised protection, and only her family in the in the only her family in Jericho were saved. Being a hero to Israel, no doubt, uh, she was probably honored, and through that she mingled with leaders, and thus met Salmon. Right? Because Salmon was the son of the leader, so it's kind of clear it makes sense. And therefore, they eventually meet, marry, probably fall in love, and have children. Uh, it could be then that you don't never know. Your marriages are arranged, and it's possible that, that Nason, uh, being the king, uh, uh, the, the leader of Israel, of that tribe, decided that, that, that he wanted her for his da son, daughter-in-law. You know, and it could have been that way, too. You, you don't know the, the history on that. But either way... Uh, they did have Rahab the harlot was married to Salmon, who was the son of Nason, the son of Abinadad, <laughs> okay, the son of Ezram, the son of uh, Pharaz, uh, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, and the list goes on. Okay, Boaz. Boaz, we know, was a wealthy landowner in Bethlehem in Judea. And we know Boaz uh, uh, was a relative of, of, of um, he was a relative of Naomi's late husband. And Boaz described as a worthy man who believed in the Lord. And he begat Obed of Ruth. So he married Ruth. So we know a lot about, Obed, about, Obed, about Boaz because Ruth talks about it a lot. But we also know he married Ruth. You know, Ruth was a Moabite, a Gentile. She was a poor widow of an Israelite. She was moral and upright. She was faithful. She was a believer in God. And her name means a friend. So she and Boaz had a son named Obed. We know nothing about the life of Obed other than that his conception was directly ordained to the Lord. The Lord enabled Ruth to conceive and she gave birth to a son. So we know that God ordained the birth of Obed. He was cared for by his grandmother in verse 16. And uh, he caused great joy in Bethlehem. And it says, Obed begat Jesse. Not so much to know about him. I mean, we know Jesse was the sheep farmer in Bethlehem. We know he had eight sons. We know the youngest son was David. Uh, his name's often referred to, though, when discussing the lineage of Jesus. In Isaiah, Jesse is mentioned as the stump from which the branch, Christ, would come. Isaiah 11, 1, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. So Jesse was known. Um, so we see that. Verse 6 says, And Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Salmon, and her son had been the wife of Uriah. Jesse begat David the king. You know, we, need, we don't need to go into great detail on David. We know David's story is very clear in the Bible. You know, we see his scriptures throughout 
scripture. The most noble passage, though, concerning David probably is in Acts 13.22. And it says, And he raised up unto them David to be their king. This is God. To whom also he gave their testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. David was a man after God's own heart. David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Uriah. So we see here that again, not only did David, did Jesus come out of Thiraz and you know that came out of that relationship, but David also, I mean, Jesus also came out of the relationship. Out of all of David's children, he came out of Solomon. Solomon became king, and Solomon was the son of Bathsheba, who was born from the adulterous relationship that she had had. Not from that relationship, that child died, but Bathsheba became the wife of David because of that adulterous relationship. Now, Solomon, just like David, we know the greatness of his history is recorded throughout Scripture. He was known as the wisest man to ever live. Still, he ended his life showing lack of practicing that wisdom, falling into idolatry and even rejecting God's word. You know, some believe that Solomon made it successfully into heaven. I have doubts. There's, and I can do a discussion with you on that. And those that's in my son's class know I've I've had that discussion before. Why I don't know if Solomon because there was there was there was uh, uh, idol temples, idol that was idol altars that were created throughout Israel that Solomon could have destroyed. He did not. And the last words of the Bible about Solomon and history of Solomon was that he killed the man who came to him and told him about his evil from God. He killed the person from God's messenger. So that's what we have left with Solomon. And and so, you know, some believe Ecclesiastes written in his latter part of life. I can't tell you that. I hope that I'm wrong on that. But I know he did not destroy the temples. And it, had, it was not destroyed until hundreds of years later when another king came and cleaned up the, the idols that were created by Solomon. So I don't know. But anyway, verse 16. And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Jacob begat Joseph, the son of the husband of Mary. You know, believe it or not, much discussion has gone on in this scripture because some people believe that the scripture misinterpreted that, that, that Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, that this should have said Jacob begat Joseph, the father of Mary, that Joseph's father's name was, that G Mary's father's name was Joseph and not that way. Others believe that this is the lineage from the king coming from Joseph showing the father's lane and not Mary. Um, not sure really where you want to fall on that, but, you know, um, I, I agree that, that others believe this is the correct, that shows the legal father of Jesus. I kind of believe that. Um, pastor establishes legal right to the throne. Luke, by the way, establishes bloodline to the throne. So I don't really have a problem one way or the other, and it's not really time to debate that today. It said, Mary of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Mary was young and a pure Israelite girl. She was evidently very religious and willing to live her life. Interesting, Mary, the name Mary means their rebellion. <laughs> That's interesting because anything in her life was not uh, about rebellion at all. I mean, it's uh, God wanted one thing and our sinful flesh wants another. And Jesus there to reconcile it. So, you know, 
uh, uh, we never see any form of rebellion in, in life of Mary. She simply did what she needed to do. Verse 17 says, So all the generation from Abraham to David were 14, and from David into the carrying away into Babylon are 14, and from the carrying away into Babylon to Christ are 14. You know, simply enough, God establishes the timing of events and aligned them to this moment in time. Now let's look at uh, Hebrews. Says in verse one and two a God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets hath in these last days spoken to us by his son. You know, the first it says God. Interesting enough, the Hebrew book begins with the word God and doesn't question that. You know, before you can even worry about anything, you got to recognize that there's a God. It begins that way. Spurgeon says deity is not to be explained but to be adored. The sonship of Christ is to be accepted as a truth of revelation, to be apprehended by faith, though it cannot be comprehended by the understanding. You simply got to believe God exists. If you don't believe in God, there's not much you can do. You know, people say, what about in the beginning God? What if you don't believe God? Well, then you can't believe anything. In the beginning God. If you don't believe God, I can't do anything for you. You know, Romans says that from the visible things of the world, his power and God has clearly seen, and therefore is without excuse. So, Everyone has to believe there's a God. But if you don't accept that there's a God, for some reason, you say there's not, even though you're fooling yourself, there's not much you can do. So he says, God, who at sundry time and in divers manner spake in times past. Sometimes God spoke through different methods. Sometimes he spoke through parables, narratives, prophetic confrontations, dramatic presentations, psalms, proverbs. In the Old Testament, he spoke to Moses through a burning bush. Elijah, a still voice, Isaiah through heavenly visions, Hosea by his family crisis, Amos by a basket of fruit. And it says, hath in these last days now, in the terms of reference to the Messiah, it may be an extended period, but in these last days. So he said all these things, he spoke, he, God spoke to us in a variety of ways, but in these last days, in the current time we're living in now, he spoke to us, it says, unto us by his son. Interesting, he says us being all mankind. Not just the Jews. God spoke to us. It isn't much, so much that Jesus brought a message from the Father, but that he is the message from the Father. You know, the idea that Jesus is far more than the latest or best prophet. Uh, he has revealed something no other prophet could. The revelation from Jesus himself is unique because not only was he purely God's message, but it was also God's personality through the message which the message came um, verse 2b, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. So we see, uh, this is the idea that Jesus is preeminent. Uh, whom he appointed heir of all things. In Colossians 1.15, who is the image of the invisible God, the very, the firstborn of every creature. See, Jesus is appointed heir of all things. It says, by whom also he made the worlds. See, the Greek word translated world is aeon, in which we get the English word eon. It means that Jesus made more than the material world. He also made the very ages. He made history itself is the creation of the Son of God. Everything is about what God did, about what Jesus did. From eons, from times past to times forth, by whom all, he made all the worlds. Verse 3a, who being the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of his person, Jesus is the brightness of God's glory. In the ancient Greek, you know, we use the word, the brightness here speaks of radiant. 
And this is Jesus is the beam of God's glory. If you ever seen the sun, you can't look at it. You can only look at the rays. You can't look directly at it. It's impossible. It'll burn the retinas in your eyes. Even so, just the same way, we can't see God, but we can see the rays that comes from God. We can see the imminent, the brightness from God through Jesus Christ. See, the ancient philosopher of Philo used the same Greek word to describe the logos, the essence, the very beginning, the essence of God. In the beginning was the word. The word logos is used there. Jesus is the logos of God, the very essence of God. It says, and the expressed image of his person, the idea of an light, exact likeness as made by a stamp. Jesus is the very stamp of God. When he puts his stamp on you, he puts the image of God. See, you know, if you go somewhere like a Super Park or whatever, they put the stamp on you so you can come and go. Some of them where you can't see unless you have ultraviolet light, but that's a logo, that's an image, that's an essence. God puts his stamp, his expressed image of God is Jesus. And withholding all things by his power, upholding all things. The idea of the word upholding is better thought of as maintaining. So the world, all he maintains all things by his power. God, Jesus, contains the world. The world stays in place because of the power of God. Today, the world spins around the sun because of the power of God. The world spins around the day, sun, so we have the sun, winter. We have winter and spring because of the power of God, because of Jesus' power. We have rain and sun and winter and spring. We have life and death because of the power of God. God keeps everything together. Jesus is upholding all things by the power, by the word of his power, it says here. Uh, Colossians 1.17, And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Verse 3a, When he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down on the right hand of the Father, the majesty on high. From the previous description, we know that God's Son is the being, the great power of wisdom. We know He is also a being of great love who purged the guilt and shame of our sins. He sat down on the right hand, majesty. This is the position of majesty, of honor, of glory, of finished work. Jesus was the priest who can sacrifice, and when He's done with the sacrifice, He sat down. There was no chairs in the private chambers of the altar room. Where they offered the sacrifice. There was no chairs. Matter of fact, they tied a rope on the priest's legs so if they, they couldn't hear them with the bells, they pulled them out because they couldn't go in there. But in Jesus, when he poured his blood on the altar, when he sacrificed himself, he says he sat down because there was no more sacrifices needed. He sat down on the right hand of God. There was nothing else needed to be done. Verse 4, being made much lower than the angels, he hath by inheritance attained a more excellent name than they. This description of Jesus' previous verse shows us that he is far superior than angels. We can say he is eternally better than angels, but he also became better. He, he, he eternally better than angels, but he also became better than the angels. See, uh, Hebrews 1.4 says Christ is the heir, Christ is the creator, Christ is the revelator, Christ is the sustainer, Christ is the redeemer, Christ is the ruler, Christ is supreme. As he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. See, we often contrast understanding things when they're set in contrast to others. So if we look at the Old Testament, there's a dangerous tendency to worship angels in those days. But here the writer said, there's no comparison. Verse 5a, For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. 
See, God called Jesus son. Psalms 2, 7. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son. This day I have begotten thee. God has also spoken to God the Son and described him as begotten. The word begotten speaks of eternal, of equity of substance. It means that the Father and the Son share the same being. And 5b says, And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Samuel 7, 12-14 said, When the day be fulfilled, thou shalt sleep with thy fathers. I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy wiles, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for thy, my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. That is the prophecy that God gave David about what was coming. So we see these statements is an excellent example of the Old Testament prophecy that had to be fulfilled. So, time is up. So let me just tell you, this was a great lesson. A lot included. We can cover just Hebrew one by itself. But it shows you the lineage of Jesus, that Jesus had the right to be the Savior and that he included Gentiles in his bloodline that are us. So Jesus was a person whose blood we all shared. Not just the Jewish people. But we also see that when times come, Jesus came at the perfect time to do the sacrifice he needed to do. And we can honor him in this Christmas season. So as you think on Christmas about the sacrifice, about Jesus' birth in the manger, you can't deny the cross. You can't deny the perfect timing that God prepared. He prepared him. He was born to die for our sins. And being the perfect image of God, he could. And I pray today that you will remember that. Let's pray as time is over. Dear Lord, thank you for this opportunity we have that we can come to you. We can worship you. We can learn a lot today, Lord, in your word. More than we can cover in the time allotted. But we thank you, Lord, for all you do for us. Help us, Lord, to learn, to read, to apply. And Lord, be uh, able to be faithful witnesses. Let us tell somebody in this Christmas season that it's not about the babe in the manger, but it's the it's the Savior that's coming out of the tomb who died for their sins that we should be celebrating at the Christmas season. Thank you, Lord, for all you do for us. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for your time, your attention, and whew, take some time to read it for yourself because there's more there than I could cover. <laughs> Thanks. Bye.